Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap and Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Spurs. Now I've always been quite remiss about doing a full podcast on Spurs, purely because as a season ticket holder there's always that fear that you're going to end up just doing a two hour long podcast about how just how wonderful and amazing Tottenham are and you know, it will just really appear biased and it just won't it won't appeal to anyone who isn't a Tottenham Hotspur fan who wouldn't just be nodding along anyway saying, well, aren't Tottenham great? <laughs> and so really I'm going to sort of get two strands and try and... two different podcasts and put them together as one. So really part one of this podcast is going to be talking about this season and really the sort of Maurizio Pochettino era and almost ask the wider question of where can Tottenham go and where can... You know, Maurizio Pochettino go. And really the second part of this podcast is going to be a a wider discussion on really where Tottenham stand in English football history. I see Tottenham as a bellwether. I see them as the canary down the mine of English football. Is that if you want to see the health of English football in terms of internally, in terms of how you're doing in Europe, look to see where Tottenham are. In other words, if I was to ask you, the listener, name me the most successful teams in English football history. <clears throat> vast majority of people would say, straight away, without thinking, Man United and Liverpool. You'd then have a range of people who would answer, who would add in different clubs. You know, Some of the more old-timer people would say Everton. You know, that's, you know, historically, you know, you'd have some people who, Arsenal fans, who'd be screaming at the screen that I should have said, you know, Liverpool, Mayad and Arsenal. And then you'd have some people, you know, more modern people who would say, if let's say the younger viewers, who'd be, you know, wondering why I haven't mentioned Chelsea and Man City. And you'd have a few people that might even put Spurs in the sort of wider, you know, team and you might have a few people that might say Forest, you know, Villa, you know, any number of a handful of other teams, you know, a lot of them, you know, you could someone could even argue Preston North End. It's but, you know, if you were going to get a consensus, you know, you'd end up with, you know, really United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Everton, Chelsea, City and Spurs. Now with Man United and Liverpool it's sort of monolithic success. So you have, you know, United, it's really Busby and Ferguson. And there's a handful of other managers that, you know, Ron Atkinson picked up a couple of FA Cups. Mourinho had elements of success, although obviously the way how it, this season has gone has really tarnished that to an extent. And with Liverpool, you know, you've had some sort of success, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. But really where we see Liverpool in terms of success in English football, really starts at Shankly and, you know, from 1963 well into, you know, effectively the late 80s, early 90s. And now you've, you know, had this sort of revival, you know, under Hullier, Benitez and now Klopp, where they're going for the title. And with Arsenal, you, generally speaking, you're talking about Wenger, you're talking about George Graham and Bertie Mee and a handful of other people won bits and pieces, but for the most part, you know, and with Chelsea, you know, you're looking at you know the Abramovich era 
And with Man City, you know, you're looking for primarily to the, you know, Abu Dhabi, Sheikh Manzur era. So when you look at these teams and what they've won and the periods, there's always generally a sense that you will have, like, you know, every team at some point gets good. If you're a professional team, that means you've won, you know, X number of leagues to get to the point where you're within the football league. So if you look at Chelsea, generally speaking, pre-Roman, you have a sort of period of time in the late 60s, early 70s, where Matt, where Chelsea were good. So in 65, they win the League Cup, they win the FA Cup in 70, and they win the UEFA Cup in 71. That's sort of a period of success. And if you look at Everton, they had sort of two general periods of success, sort of post-1950. So you've got the... You know, they win the league in 62-63, and they win an FA Cup in 66, and the next period of success is in the 80s, really. So they win the league in 84-85, 86-87, they win the FA Cup in 84. So what I'm trying to really get at is a way of explaining sort of Spurs' success over this period. And I, I, I think the best way of doing it is to effectively create a, a test subject. So this is someone who was born in, let's say, 45. And, you know, comes of age, you know, as a football fan. Basically, let's say, we'll, we'll say 1950 is his first, his or even her, first major year supporting English football. So we'll make that person supports non-league. So every week goes to his local non-league team and watches them. And keeps a wider interest in you know, English football as a whole. So he'll always watch from the quarterfinals onwards of the FA Cup and the League Cup. He'll keep an eye on the top four, top five. So in other words, the race for the championship. And he'll keep an eye on who's you know who's in the relegation zone and who's coming up from Division One. So, within this sort of time period, and let's say this guy is still existing and is you know, you know seventy five, seventy six, seventy seven. So late seventies, he's now obviously retired. And then within that time period, so in his first year, Tottenham get promoted from you know Division Two. I believe they won Division Two, the title, and they then in. 50-51 are back in the first division. That year under Arthur Rowe, push and run, they win the league. And really from that point onwards, so this sort of 75-77 year period, they've always been there or thereabouts. So if we're going to just go through, you know, I'll list out what, what they've won. So it's, you know, they win the double in 61, so that's League and Cup. Uh, the FA Cup in 62, 67... 81, 82, 91, League Cup in 71, 73, 1999, 2007, UEFA Cup in 72, 84, and the Cup Winners' Cup in 63. But over that period of time, there's never really been anything more than a sort of three, four year period where Tottenham weren't either in, you know, going for the sort of top five, top six, or they were in Europe, or they were in a Cup quarter final, Cup semi final. And really, outside of, you know, even... So, to keep that kind of relevancy going for such an extended period of time, 
So you're not only talking the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, 80s, 90s, the noughties, and, you know, the decade we're in at the moment, the 10s, is that it's a kind of success. It's not the monolithic success of Liverpool or United or even to an extent Arsenal under Wenger and under George Graham, but it's just a form of relevancy. So if you look at Chelsea... You know, in in that same time frame of our, you know, let's call him Jeff. In Jeff's lifetime, you've had long periods where Chelsea wouldn't have been on his radar, where they were, you know, you know, either at the bottom end of Division One or they spent a few years in Division Two. You know, even the same thing with you know, like with Man City. You know, they have some success around about the you know the late sixties. They win the league in sixty eight. They win the FA Cup in sixty nine. They win the Cup Winners Cup in. 70 and the League Cup. So that's a period of two, three years. Really what that means is is that, you know, like with the Everton team, they had a good team in the late 60s, early 70s. They had a really good team in the mid-80s. And the surrounding time period is really fallow. There are some years they're better than others, but they're just there. And so what fascinates me, if you look at the, really, the great Tottenham managers, and I'd say you've got maybe... I'd say four. And there's a couple of others who are sort of on the, the borderline. So you're four, you know, absolute, you know, Mount Rushmore, great Spurs managers is Arthur Rowe. So Arthur Rowe picks up an outfit in the sort of 40s, late 40s, post-war years, who weren't, who, you know, Tottenham had some element of success. They, you know, the last amateur team to win the FA Cup in 1901. They'd won the FA Cup in 90, in, two, in 1921. Outside of that, they'd had some lot of years in Division 2 in the 30s, and that was when Arsenal under Herbert Chapman were just sweeping English football. And they'd been a little bit of a yo-yo team. So they had, you know, some element of, you know, name brand recognition. You know, Tottenham Hotspur, it's a romantic name. And they, you know, some people knew them. But there was no sense when he picked up the job that, you know, there was any guarantee that Tottenham was still, in 75 years' time, going to be at the top end of English football. And so he creates, you know, push and run. It's a, you know, even now, when you look back at some, if you listen to interviews that he did, you know, in the sort of 70s and 80s, it's it it still functions now. The idea of you know, you, know, you make a pass, you, you you carry on, you make runs. You know, it's it's a very powerful concept when you think about it. That he was doing it in nineteen fifty or nineteen fifty style pitches. I suppose one of the you know the ultimate sort of what if moments. And there's a lot of what if moments in sort of Tottenham's history is that they nearly won the league in fifty two. But the weather that year wasn't particularly good, and Tottenham's pitch was an absolute quagmire for you know those winter months. And it turns out when they eventually redid the pitch, sort of ten, fifteen, twenty years later, that originally the ground was basically a nursery. So when they dug it up to kind of lay down some, you know, what would have eventually become undersoil heating, was that the actual nursery was still basically there underneath the pitch which is why the drainage wasn't particularly good in other words no one had thought let's properly clear it they just basically put some mud on top of it and there was you know, Tottenham's pitch and that's why they couldn't you know get the same sort of results that they'd had the previous year because you can't really do push and run 
in a you know effectively a World War One battlefield. And so he had a period of success in the 50s, and then by sort of the mid-50s, Tottenham then started to sort of slide a bit down to... So in other words, there were lots of teams in and around that era who could just have one great year. In other words, you could just you could be in Division 2, you could do really well in Division 2, come up to Division 1, and if, you know, and just hit a run of form. And, you know, there, was, there, was very, there wasn't as many ways for... You know, there was a lot more parity. In other words, the really the the sort of the teams that stick out in the nineteen fifties were were just the teams that had two or three great players. So you had the Stan Carlis Wolves team, and you had what became the Busby Babes with under Manchester United. But everybody else was much of a muchness, and really, you know, the playing squads weren't as large. You know, you effectively had a starting lineup and a couple of people that would effectively sub in if someone wasn't available. So in other words, if your players all that year stayed fit and healthy, if you got on a run of form, if you had a bit of luck, you would had just as much chance of winning the league as any number of four or five decent teams in any given year. So as that, you know, Arthur Rose push and run team, as that declines, again, there's nothing historically that said that Tottenham were going to carry on. That could just be Tottenham's great moment, you know, much in the same way that Chelsea's title win in 55 didn't lead on to anything. You know. And so then you get to the point where sort of Nicholson picks up the team in the late 50s. There's still a couple of good players here or there, a couple of declining players. And again, he's, you know, in this period, so, you know, so Rowe was going up against Stan Cullis. He was going up against Matt Busby. And so in the Nicholson era, he was going up against Shankly, Busby. Revy, all of these sort of totemic figures of English football management. And again, there's no guarantee that the team he picks up that just above the drop zone are in any way, shape or form guaranteed to be the team of the 60s. It wasn't as if Tottenham spent huge amounts more money than anybody else. You know, they weren't as big, you know, you could argue as Manchester United. And in any discussion about Tottenham, you always have to understand that it's London. You have the, sort of the peculiarities of London in comparison with every single major European football city. In other words, you have Milan. You have Internationale. You have AC. If there is a third Milan team, I can't think of them. I don't know which division they're in, but it's not Serie A. And as far as I'm aware, it's not in C1 or C2. Okay, so if you look at Madrid, you know, you have Getafe. And in Barcelona, you have Espanyol. But neither of those two teams, you know, they've had periods of success, but they don't take huge amounts of oxygen away from, you know, Barcelona. In other words, if Espanyol, you know, folded tomorrow, those people wouldn't go and immediately then become Barcelona fans. You're an Espanol fan for your own personal reasons. It, you know, maybe you don't like you know, Barcelona, but in that sense, what you have with London is is that you can never have... There's no such thing as a London club. There's never been a time that you know people would leave Chelsea or leave Arsenal or West Ham or Fulham or Charlton to go for the most successful London team. In other words, Spurs had their fans, 
and that was it. You know, it wasn't going to get any larger, <laughs> depending on their success. In other words, just it's almost I would describe it like spheres of influence. So when you're comparing the relative size of a club to someone like you know, Liverpool, where you've just got Everton, Liverpool, and you know you have Trammy, but they're never Trammy are never going to take any oxygen away from Liverpool. There's plenty of Tramia fans that go to Everton or go to Liverpool when they're not watching Tramia. And so when Nicholson arrives he then, you know, starts buying players, starts you know, really revitalised push and run into his own idea of what great football is. I mean it's one of the fascinating things of, you know, Arthur Rowe's push and run team is just who comes out of that team. Nicholson who becomes a you know brilliant manager in you know in the sixties. And then you have you have Alf Ramsey who becomes a manager and does really well at Ipswich and then leads England to the you know nineteen sixty six World Cup. In other words, the you know, really that team and there's a couple other players who came went on and had success in management was just that it, that it was, you know, really almost in a way a precursor of the the boot room. I suppose the difference between Tottenham and Liverpool being is that Effectively, Nicholson goes on to you know build Spurs in his image and become one of the great managers, and that you know Al Ramsey goes to Ipswich and goes to the FA. Is that it didn't benefit Tottenham in the longevity sense that that the boot room did. In other words, the boot room helped Liverpool and Liverpool alone. And so you have the success that Tottenham have in the sixties, the glory, glory years, the success they had in Europe, and then sort of. And I've, I've sort of spoken about this before, is that you have the sort of great post-war managers and effectively their periods of success were, were the early to mid-60s. By the end of the sort of decade, the world was moving on. So in other words, their viewpoint and their you know, experiences, which was mostly, you know, sort of in some way, shape or form, shaped by an industrial world, by the Depression, by World War Two. By the time you get to the sort of generation of footballers in the late 60s, early 70s, their world view isn't, isn't in any way, shape or form based on, you know, industrialisation. It's not based on World War Two. It really is based on, you know, the sort of... You know, it's far more based on the wrong sort of popular culture, you know, television. Radio, films, and it, and as a result, th these sort of these managers whose control was always total, was always dominant, was always very discipline focused, then came up with a bunch against a sort of generation of players with you know long hair, different attitudes, different world views, and that so these these managers sort of slowly but surely declined. You had, you know, Don Revy leaves to go manage England and just isn't able to recreate the same success that he had at Leeds and then effectively gets supplanted by Brian Clough. Now Brian Clough doesn't succeed at Leeds United. But his worldview is the one that, that dominates. His worldview is the one that carries on and has success in the late 70s and the 80s with Forrest. Whereby Reeve's career, once he leaves the England job, well, and he leaves it effectively you know, in disgrace, 
never recovers. You know, Nicholson has some success in the early 70s, but basically it's not the same level of success that he had in the 60s. He leaves Spurs, he goes, spends a little bit of time managing West Ham, and he's really done as a, a top-level manager. You know, the same thing you know, happens to Shankly, and he gets replaced, and you know, the world moves on. So by the time we get to Birkinshaw in the late 70s, you know, Tottenham are in decline. You know, they've, you know, the, the Bill Nicholson team is done, and really, at that point, you know, the footballing world was with, you know, Leeds, Derby, and eventually, you know, Nottingham Forest. You had the brilliant Liverpool teams. There was no guarantee that Tottenham, in any way, shape or form, were going to get back to that. Yes, they'd had a, a long period of success, but that was really centred upon two managers. And, you know, Rome had, you know, effectively begetted English football Ramsey and Nicholson. But Nicholson and, and that era didn't... Like I've just sort of said previously, it, there was no equivalency of the boot room at Tottenham. Eventually, some you know players that played under Bill Nicholson did have some managerial success. Probably the best one I'd say off the top of my head would be Venables, but you can also sort of mention Kinnear, and maybe to an even lesser extent, you could probably say Alan Mullery, but I think that's pushing it a little bit. Although, to be fair, you could argue that in Venables and Mullery created the Southern Rail derby between... Palace and Brighton, which is <laughs> a unique claim to fame in that regards. But but by the time you you reach Birkenshaw, you know he's what I imagine that leads Tottenham down. But it's been go, it's been heading in that direction for an extended period of time, and to for him to not only get Tottenham promoted the first you know <clears throat> at the first attempt, the first division that Tottenham returned to in the late 70s, there's, again, no guarantee that Spurs were going to, you know, be able to compete, you know, with the likes of Forrest, with the likes of Liverpool, in the sense that, you know, Tottenham had changed. You know, it was a run-down area. A lot of people, you know, a sort of couple of generations of people had really moved out to the suburbs. There was no guarantee that you know you you started having the blight of you know football hooliganism you had attendances dropping you had the first sort of shoots of of modernization you know you you started with lots of clubs building stands and all of those clubs in the sort of late 70s and 80s that built stands it it didn't go well you know you have the east stand at um Chelsea that nearly bankrupted them. You had the Stan Collis stand at um, Wolves, and you had the West Stand at Spurs. The the they could, in other words, football was changing, but those stands were, yeah, they were in Congress. They just looked out of place. You had all of these kind of sort of Edwardian, sort of Victorian kind of stadiums, and then just sort of plunked right down in the middle of it was this sort of gleaming, you know, smoke glass stands with seats and executive boxes. And really, the financial infrastructures that these clubs 
weren't designed to take on millions of pounds worth of debt. They weren't really able to supervise these projects. So they all you know, spiralled out of control. And, and as a result, what you end up being with is that Birkinshaw had to come up with some way to make Tottenham relevant. You know, to, to really push Tottenham to the upper end of the first division. And so you have the signings of Ricky Villa and Osvaldo Ardiles. And that's a real game changer. And you, you, you know, match that with Hoddle and then really what moved on into the, you know, under the Pleat era with, you know, Waddle, Hoddle, Ardiles, you know, Clive Allen up front. <laughs> it was such a, a bold and daring move and the fact that it worked. There was other, lots of other teams in that era who bought foreign players. The classic, one of my favourite stories is how uh, Sheffield United bought um, Antonio Sabella, who was the coach of um, Argentina uh, a couple of World Cups ago. And effectively, they want, they had some money, they wanted a brilliant foreign player, and originally they went with Diego Maradona, who was basically, end up moving to Barcelona, Napoli, and you know into modern football history. And they were willing, to, and they nearly got uh, nearly second division, Sheffield United nearly got Diego Maradona, and eventually the deal broke down, and uh, they ended up with Sabella. Now Sabella did a couple of years at, at Sheffield United, but didn't quite fit in, and didn't take Sheffield United where they were hoping that he was going to take them. And you know, you do have um, you know, obviously a couple of Dutch players at Arnold Muren, Ipswich. But that wasn't quite as risky a move. In other words, you know, moving from you know Holland to you know East Anglia, you know, even in terms of just distance, isn't that far. And you know, although there were cultural differences, it was still you know North Europe. It wasn't whereby the the sort of cha- the sea change from going from you know Argentina to North London was massive in terms of, you know, language, culture, you know, that whereby now, you know, a, a player moving to London, you know, virtually regardless of what nationality, there's going to be a restaurant that will match your cuisine, whereby there wasn't really that kind of culture, there wasn't really, you know, you, even if those restaurants had existed, you wouldn't have known where to find them, you wouldn't have known where to look for them, whereby now, if you say Argentine Steakhouse, you just look it up on Google, it, the map will tell you where to go, how to get there, how much it costs, and all those other bits and pieces. And also, you know, clubs have player development officers, you know, just a whole menagerie of different things that can help a player, whereby, you know, in you know, with Tottenham, we just stuck them in a the house, and good luck. You know, you pr- hopefully, you should probably live quite close together. You should get on quite well. You're it, really. <laughs> and... I mean, one of the, my favourite stories of this kind of era is um, when Tottenham signed a winger and uh, Ralph Coates. Now, Ralph Coates was moving from north of England down to London and we basically, Tottenham put him up in a house in Palmer's Green with no telephone, you know, no furniture and really the, you know, just basically left him completely on his own. So if it was that difficult for someone who literally lived in the same country, albeit two, three hundred miles up north, can you imagine trying to do the exact same principle Argentina without the language, with the language barrier? 
And so that really, you know, he then mobbed a team. Obviously, you've got Crooks, Archibald, you know, Glenn Hoddle in midfield, you know, Graham Roberts at the back. And it then culminates in this sort of long period of success. And although it never quite gets up to the level of, you know, winning league titles, you know, winning in Europe, you know, is, is a tremendous achievement. And I suppose what makes the sort of Birkinshaw years look so much better is that the success was able to be maintained in a way that when, you know, Nicholson left Spurs, Terry Neal didn't and really put the I suppose the seeds of Tottenham's relegation were sown right there. Even if it was, you know, Birkinshaw who took them down, he took he you know, he came across a club that was in you know, that was going to go down sooner or later and really needed that kind of shock to be able to then effectively start again. Which sort of leads us then on to sort of Plea and Venables, who are really they're not quite at that level of greatness. I think Venables is a bit closer than Pleat, but then I suppose with Pleat you're looking at that kind of one year where, and I think it's quite relevant if you look at it now, is that in the sense that Tottenham were going for you know the league, a couple of the cup competitions, and, and ran out of steam. Which, I suppose if you think about it now, it's ironic in the sense that you know Pep Guardiola was going for you know quadruple. And... There's no sense that actually they lost that quadruple because of tiredness in any way, shape or form. Or that they, you know, ran out of steam. It was a complete... And I'll probably go into more detail in maybe the sort of second half of the um, podcast really talking about the you know, Man City-Tottenham game. Because there was just so much going on. What I would say, when looking back at these sort of great Tottenham managers, and obviously the, the fourth person on that list is Pochettino, is that when each of these managers takes over, there's no sense of guarantee. There's no sense that, you know, obviously we're, you know, Nicholson, when he took over, they're at the bottom end of Division 1, and they have been for a couple of years. You know, when Rowe takes over, you know, Tottenham haven't you know, been an established Division 1 team, really from a best part of a generation. You know, when, you know, Birkinshaw, you know, picks up a team that is destined to go down and he takes them down. You know, when you know, Pochettino takes over at Spurs. Probably out of the, you know, the list, he's the one that picked up the best you know, outfit in the best position. In other words, Tottenham had you know, qualified for the Champions League under Harry Redknapp. They were still a top seven, top six team. But they'd had this sort of disastrous you know, situation under you know, Tim Sherwood, where you know, effectively Sherwood won the games he was supposed to, but the second that there was that step up a level or he came up against someone with a, a sort of tactical sentence, he was absolutely naked, and the team was naked. I think one of the classic ones was the game on Mother's Day against Liverpool, and this was Liverpool when they were going for the title, and that team was steamrolling people at Anfield. 
And you know, they had a fantastic thrump free in Coutinho, in Luis Suarez, in you know, a fit and healthy Daniel Sturridge. You had, you know, Gerard in centre midfield. You know, there was you know, Anfield was an absolute beehive of hopes and noise. So, you know, this was a you know, relatively you know, unsuccessful Tottenham team. You know, there was no guarantee that they were going to be able to get a result. But he just set it up in a, this really basic 4-4-2. So there wasn't really much cover in you know, sort of central midfield. He had Gilfie Sigurdsson on the left. And you just... The team knew that they didn't have a plan that was going to be able to stop Liverpool. And within really the first 10-15 minutes, the game was over and they just got smashed. And there was a game against West Ham away. And again, he just sort of you know, stuck out this 4-4-2 and you could just see that, that Big Sam Allardyce just saw him coming and said, OK, I can pick out the weak points you know, in, cent- in, in the centre-backs. You know, we're going to put them under pressure. We're going to flood the midfield. And, you know, West Ham won, I think, 2-0. I think, but I think Lloris made four or five fantastic saves. And really, it could have been five or six, and Tottenham would have had, had no complaints whatsoever. I mean, there was talent, but there was it was a mixed-match squad. You had, you know, sort of Paulinho. You know, you had Emmanuel Adebayor. You know, you had Gilfie Sigurdsson. You just, it was... You know, a bit of a mess. You know, you had you know Ericsson, and the club really hadn't recovered from selling Gareth Bale. I mean, they had this difficult position where they had, you know, the eighty-six million pounds. They had some you know transfer money. They sold a few other players, but there was no real ability for the club to compete at the upper end of the transfer market. So, in other words, they weren't going to be able to get you know a a superstar. They weren't going to be able to, you know, spend the whole money and get Luis Suarez. They were always going to have to pick the right players. And so they, you know, in turn and this is the funny thing is that when they originally sold Bale, the players they bought have actually for the most part all ended up being, you know, good. You know, Paulinho had success, you know, with the Brazilian national team. He had a fantastic year in you know, Barcelona, somewhat unexpectedly, but there was an you know you can see his talent. He does get goals. He is versatile. He can do different jobs. You know, in the sense that Etienne Capou, you know, and really Capou's a fascinating what if is that when he first started playing his first few games for Tottenham, he looked very good. He was quite strong. He was dominant. He could get a lot of tackles. He had a fairly decent engine on him. He could pass the ball, and he had a little bit of skill. But, you know, he picked up a couple of injuries. I think he was, you know, he was relatively young. It was his first time outside of France. And what I would say about Tim Sherwood is, is that he has skills. I think he's a pretty decent evaluator of football players. I think, you know, if you put him in the right situation, I think he'd be a decent academy director. But his flaws are just self-evident you can just see it he is very vain and very arrogant and as a result all of what all of his talk is always bombast it's in other words he has done good things but he it's never enough it always has to be like you know fantastic in other words yeah he did you know give harry kane playing time but that wasn't enough he had to say that he had sort of coached him you know all throughout the youth system 
when he hadn't, in other words, when he first joined you know, Harry Redknapp's staff, he was working you know, sort of two half days a week with the first team. He wasn't looking after you know, 14, 15, 16-year-old Harry Kane in the youth system. He you know, would virtually not come across him. But that was it. He couldn't just be the person who'd given you know, Harry Kane a bit of playing time. He had to be the one who had been like, you know, almost self-appointed as the architect of Harry Kane's career. Which is just ridiculous because once you look up the actual, you know, the, the true facts of the matter, it just makes him look, you know, you know, just completely ridiculous. And so we then come back to this sense that all of these four men always come up against, you know, fantastic teams, fantastic managers. So in other words, you know, Pochettino came up against, you know, the likes of, you know, Mourinho, Guardiola, Klopp. You have the money that's been put into Man City. You have the money that's been put into <coughs> Chelsea through Abramovich. You know, Man United have spent, you know, ridiculously large amounts of money. You know, there is, you know, there was even late career Wenger. Those teams were always in and around, you know, fourth place they'd spent you know really the best part of a generation ahead of spurs you know and you know really in the sort of the last kind of throw of the dice with wenger they gave him you know quite large amounts of money you know and and really you have the sort of revitalization of the middle class in the premier league you know with the money that has come through and you know that's been spent at Everton you now have the project that you have at Wolves and Watford and as a result a lot of the avenues that Tottenham had used to become successful in the sort of intervening years really after sort of the the late 90s onwards and I was the long road back to you know relevance that was really you know sort of to an extent George Graham but to a, a much wider sense is David Pleat. So it was David Pleat who had his own transfer budget and bought you know these young players you know for you know million pounds here, seven hundred thousand here, five hundred thousand there, and they were the real, I suppose, spine of that allowed Tottenham to basically have these young players for the you know the best part of their careers. So you're talking about, you know, sort of Anthony Gardner who got an England cap. I mean they signed him for a million pounds from Port Vale when he was sort of twenty, twenty one. You know, even Gary Doherty who was about one point two million pounds and who spent, you know, hundred and fifty games at Spurs, you know, regular playing for Ireland, scoring at international level. And it was those sort of players that, you know, and then the, really the next generation on from that, which was, you know, signing Michael Dawson, signing Jermaine Defoe, Michael Carrick, and that sort of mixture of players, you know, which then really led to sort of the Martin Joel era, was what allowed Tottenham to really jump up from sort of mid-table obscurity into, you know, competing for, you know, qualification to the Champions League. And by the time you really get to Pochettino, that avenue has closed. Or, you know, so in other words, whereby Tottenham were able to pick up, you know, Freddie Canute, Michael Carrick, they were able to pick up Jermaine Defoe from West Ham after they got relegated. You couldn't pick up, you know, the, the 
equivalent player from, you know, let's say Zaha at Palace. So in other words, you know, Tottenham would spend seven, eight million pounds, five or six million pounds here, you know, in Defoe and in Carrick. Now, if you want to sign Zaha from sort of lower mid-table Crystal Palace, you're looking at 50, 60, 70 million pounds for someone who, you know, we all know how much talent Wilfred Zaha has, but there's, he's not a, it's not a guarantee. You know, it's, it is, to an extent, a lottery ticket. You know, can he get 15 to 20 goals a season? You know, could he do well in Europe? So he's never played you know, you know, European football. You know, he's played you know, a little bit of you know, international football for the Ivory Coast. But at the same point is is that that's not a fantastic Ivory Coast team. They haven't been able to qualify for the World Cup. It's at fifty million pounds. It's if it was at twenty million pounds, I think that's a you know a signing that you would make all day. And I think Tom made that signing. But once it gets to fifty, sixty million pounds, and yet yeah, there's no end guarantee that he that he would even you know, get into the team or be any better than the players that they currently had. So. Really, the last signing that Tottenham had that you know really had any sort of, I suppose, relevance to the David Pleat era and is Deli Ali at five million pounds from MK Dons, and I suppose in a beautiful touch, the Spurs scout that really you know pushed for it was David Pleat. and really that sort of underpins, you know. How Pochettino managed to sort of push Spurs on to the next level of not just competing for the top four, but actually finishing the top four and then moving on to a title was that he was able to make these sort of signings. So you got Deli Ali at five million pounds. You had Kieran Trippier at three point five million pounds. You know, ben Davis was a little bit more expensive, sort of seven, eight, nine, ten million pounds. But because when well, he threw in sort of Gilfie Sigurdsson, the transfer was virtually a wash in terms of you know the sort of money. Is that now if you were to try and do the same thing, if you were to try and pluck a promising right back from like the lower levels of the Championship or you know the bottom half of the Premier League, you're looking at spending fifteen twenty million pounds, and in effect, almost Tottenham have got to a level of being so good. Because these players, you know, Ericsson, who was signed as part of the sort of Gareth Bale money, has developed from a, an extremely promising player to a you know standout football player, you know, at the top end. You know, in other words, he's you know he's good for double figure goals, double figures assists. You know, can really be the sort of heartbeat playmaker of a of a football team that can you know compete for the title, can compete in Europe. Is that as a result, you then can't really? I mean, I know Tottenham were linked with. James Madison, they were linked with um, David Brooks. Um, problem is, is that you can sign these players, but the you can't give them the sort of game time that they can get at Bournemouth and at Leicester. And all you could do is really, well, you should sign them, but if you're going to keep them around the first team, they'll play here and there. And I don't know whether you'd be able to get the best out of them in terms of developmentally. Because then the only other option would be is to, to loan them out. And then you get the, the situation where you've spent you know, 15, 20 million pounds on what effectively is a lottery ticket. But he's not helping your first team. He's, but at the same time, you're then relying on the loan deal. 
And as we all know, the loan market is incredibly volatile. In other words, he might go somewhere and play five games and regress, or he might do really well. It, there, there's no... I suppose when you're making those kind of signings, you have to have a, a clear path to get them into the first team. And really, that door is sort of closing, I suppose. In other words, you can... You know, they've you know, really struggled to find a... you know. A young backup for Harry Kane because you know virtually no striker who has you know any degree of promise. You go to Spurs while you're competing, not you know with Harry Kane, and now really effectively you're also competing with Son. And why would you take on such a, a, a tremendous you know challenge at that age when you can just go somewhere else and play every single week and then you know develop and if you develop to the extent of being a top level player then you can join Spurs at that level rather than having to try and work your way you know internally to that level i think that more than probably anything else really explains why you know Tottenham weren't able well really in the last three transfer windows we haven't been able to sign anyone and where some of the difficulties have arisen from the players we have signed so you know whereby we were able you know in the late 90s early 2000s to pick up young prospects very cheaply because we could offer them game time and as a unit they could then improve and get the club moving and you'd have them for the best years of your career you know you can almost say a little to an extent same thing with sort of Jermaine Genus and that kind of helped that you know our youth system was good but not overtly so so in other words you'd say that you know Lenny King was probably the last you know, truly, you know, transcendent, you know, talent that came out of the sort of youth system between, you know, the sort of the two thousands era. So, in other words, prior to that, you had, you know, Walker, Sol Campbell, Nick Barmby, you know, that's, you know, England internationals who became, you know, yeah, top level players, and you had sort of, you know, obviously Ledley King, and really, it's only been the last sort of few years where you've had. Harry Kane, Ryan Mason, and obviously you know, the horror that you know, was his career being ended in such a brutal and tragic way. Obviously an accident, but... And I suppose you could say a Nabil Bentaleb, to an extent, and now Harry Winks. So, and so really where Tottenham have now had to kind of move, because they, they can't compete at the... City and Chelsea levels of expenditure and Manchester United. And that's also not just in terms of the transfer fee, but in terms of the wages. <clears throat> They've had to really adjust it. So I, I suppose the best two examples would be um, Serge Aurier and Lucas Moura. In other words, both players had you know, success in the, the French League. Probably more more in terms of actually putting down, you know, assists, goals. And maybe with Aurier it was always more potential. So in other words, you know, both of them play, had you know, quite significant playing time at PSG, but they weren't famous enough really to famous enough or consistent enough for them to be, and they were probably too good to be bench players. So in other words, you know, under their PSG's 
sort of always slightly precarious, you know, sort of FIFA fair play, anyway for fair play, they became very attractive carrots to dangle. So the idea being is is that you can sell both of them for best part of, you know, 20, 25 million pounds each, and that will then, you know, effectively cut off the cut off some of the expenditure that they've used to get, you know, Neymar, for instance. And I suppose their thought process was is that, you know, they didn't see Tottenham Hotspur as a direct competitor, and if they weren't in the French League, so they, in other words, they weren't helping Monaco, or they weren't going to help, you know, uh, Barca, Man City, or Real Madrid. You know, the teams that PSG will need to beat to then get to the you know semi-finals and the finals and to eventually win the Champions League, which is what the Qatari owners probably desire more than anything else. And so what you you get with, you know, Aria is you can see that he's got pace. You can see that he's a good tackler. You can see that he can get up and down the wing. You can see that you know, he's got some you know some good skill. He can ping a good cross in. He is still very much a project. In other words, he's always a risk of diving in. He's a risk of giving away penalties. You know, he can be quite inconsistent. Um, really, with Mora, it's always going to be a situation that I think if you put him in the right system, he could be a player that could get you 15 to 20 goals, maybe 5 to 10 assists. He does have pace, he has good skills, but... And you can almost see why he was so highly rated out of Brazil. You can see the, the shots, the goals, the skills, the pace. But he's probably a little bit too one-footed. He's probably never going to be the sort of player that you could play in a number 10 role who would then you know, set the tempo or who would, I suppose, put the wholesale sort of goals that you would need. So in other words, a little bit like sort of when Gareth Bale was in a sort of similar role in his last season for Spurs, in which he was basically a 25 to 30 goal a season, just dead-eye finisher. In other words, just give him the ball and he will somehow find a way to, you know, he'll spank it into the top corner from 25 yards or he will be just in the right place at the right time. He's kind of... More in that regards is, I suppose, a little bit of a, a wild card. He's the sort of person that, for 10 games a season, will look like a Ballon d'Or winner. For 10 games, he will be average, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes a bit hot and cold. And for 10 games, will be anonymous. And really, it's, it's a consistency, but it is an inconsistency if you want to be a top-level team which is really where he's fitting in. Otherwise, he's got lots of goals this season, but not that many assists. And while he has, and you know, he's now coming to the fore now that there's been some injuries, specifically to Harry Kane, to a lesser extent, to Deli Alley, you know, he's someone that you know, has been effective for Tottenham, but whether he will ever carve out a full-time starting role at Spurs, I think he would have to make adjustments and... I think he would probably do quite well in Italy, I think. If you stuck him in a, like a Fiorentina team and built the team around him and just said, okay, we've got a, you know, sort of <clears throat> a traditional sort of number nine striker and we've got, you know, players who will do the defensive running for you, 
I, th- I think he could be, you know, or even a Lazio to an extent, and maybe a slightly higher team, but that kind of situation where he could produce a sort of an individual season where a little bit almost like in the sort of Darren Bent school of things. In other words, he would produce fantastic numbers, whether that would, whether, whether by channeling all the play, you know, through him and to get his numbers up to, you know, 15, 20, 25 goals a season, whether that would mean in the end your team wouldn't be particularly effective offensively. In other words, you might have him score 25 goals, but you might actually overall only score 50 goals with the rest of the players, which is a little bit what sort of happened at Sunderland with Darren Bent. In other words, Darren Bent's numbers were always you know, stratospherically good, but unfortunately because everything had to be, had to be filtered through his skill set, it meant that nobody else was able to, and the style of play wasn't conducive to other players doing well. To me, my idea of what really separates a good player from a really great player is is that a good player might be able to utilise his skill set you know, in a selfish sense to get 15, 20 goals. But if nobody else in the midfield is able to get more than three goals, you're effective, but at least on paper, but ineffective in terms of an actual what makes a team good and what makes a team effective and what gets them wins. Whereby a player that can score seven to ten goals, but if everybody else is able to get seven to ten goals, you know, because of his overall play, that's what really, you know, is a sort of true mark of quality, is whether you can get the players around you to play well. Which I think sort of neatly sort of leads into really what's next for Pochettino. In other words, in some ways the team he had and the team he created, the ones that you know, fought with Leicester and with Chelsea for the title, you know, were young. You, know, you had Deli Alley was young, you had Harry Kane who was young, you know, Sonny. They were basically varying stages of Greenhorn. You know, in other words, with Ali, it was his first couple of years as a top level, you know, in the Premier League, similar for Harry Kane. With Son, he'd had a lot of experience out in Germany, but it was really his first couple of years in in English football. And there was, you know, it is to an extent a step up and it's a different style of football. And where he'd been, you know, previously at Hamburg and to an extent at Leverkusen, he'd always been quite a sort of central figure in terms of how the, you know, football was played through him. And with Spurs, it was always going to be slightly different, and he was going to have to play more of a sort of complementary role. And it's only really now, in the last sort of eighteen months, that <clears throat> you're starting to see him through his performances, almost gets to the point where he's demanding a more sort of central role to the team. He's not just sort of someone you can play out on the left and out on the right a little bit, you know, as a sort of support player, you know, because he's got a bit of pace, he can sort of play in the wing. And if you and if you want, you can kind of slip him a little bit into the centre, you know, that kind of, you know, I'd say like a sort of cross between, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and... And Park Ji Sung, you know that kind of role player that you know can fit in anywhere, and do you a job. Whereby now you'd have to say with his sort of form specifically this year, he's really be taking a sort of a very much a central role in terms of how you're going to build the team. So really, you know, in an ideal world, you'd have Kane and Son 
as this kind of all-encompassing sort of partnership, I think what you'll find is is that is that if you play Son in a sort of central role with no Harry Kane, I think he would probably put somewhere between I say seventeen to twenty Premier League goals a season. I don't think he'll be he'll be quite as prolific as Harry Kane would be. Whereby I think if you have Harry Kane in the central role, you're looking at twenty five yeah, 22 to 25, possibly 27, possibly 30, but it's a fantastic year and he stays healthy. While Son, playing in a slightly wider role, would end up giving you 15 to 17 goals, maybe, in all competitions, possibly 20 if things go well. In that You don't get quite as much out of Son, but those two players together give you sort of 35 to 40 goals, whereby Son on his own, if you let's say, assume for a minute Harry Kane is not playing for Spurs and a replacement comes in, let's say Mora, who gets you 10, 15 goals, it's not quite as many goals and it's not quite as, as effective. And so that's really the problem, is that a lot of the sort of historical avenues for Tottenham to get better really have sort of evaporated in the last 18 months really and also is that eventually there's you know you there was no more sort of fringy PSG players that we could sign that and really from the area and the Mora is that those sort of type of players probably weren't going to be good enough to be you know out and out first team regulars and you can't compete with the sort of money that the that you know your Barca's, your Reals, your PSG's, Juventus and you know Man City were paying. You, you Tottenham aren't ever going to be in that echelon in terms of wages and in terms of transfer expenditure. At least not under Enoch as currently incorporated. So now you've got a situation where the team in certain parts is, I suppose, ageing in the sense that, you know, Danny Rose is entering his sort of late twenties, you know, so is Kieran Trippier. You know, the same thing with Vertonghen and Alderweireld. You know, they've just sold, you know, Dembele because, you know, Moussa Dembele got to that stage where he wasn't able to compete week after week in the Premier League with the sort of foot injuries that he, the long-term foot injuries he had. And so, and so this summer is going to be such an interesting, you know, it's a turn. In other words, you know, there's a likelihood that maybe Ericsson goes, that it's very likely that Alderweireld goes, and Michelle Vaughan's going. And who Tottenham signed to replace it, them, is interesting. I think with with centre halves, you know they've been linked a lot with um, Joachim Anderson, who's at, at Sampdoria, and you can see that you know he has a lot of the same qualities about Averell. He's a lot younger. He's maybe not going to be as quite as polished straight off the bat, but you know between you know Davison Sanchez between. Ram Foyf between Vertonghen and between let's say Anderson for example there's going to be enough quality and especially in the long term I mean I could easily see Ram Foyf playing as a defensive midfielder I think he's definitely got that level of passing the tackling the pace 
and that it's really you know it's a good place to have is that having that kind of quality they definitely need some fullbacks whether you know you presume one out of out out of Aurier or you know Trippier will leave you know Walker Peters whenever he's played has shown a lot of promise and I suppose you could see a situation where you know they potentially might go for a James Madison is that there's so many options I mean even you know a sort of Grealish but it's always going to be difficult to really put it into a, a kind of a narrative a narrative basis in other words you know I think one of the best things that Alex Ferguson ever did was neatly put each one of his eras into a sort of box that you can sort of nicely label. In other words, you know, the first sort of two, three years of the Premier League, you had that first great Manchester United team and they kind of sort of declined a little bit. They weren't able to get the job done in Europe, which then allows him to then bring in the, you know, class of 92 with sort of Cantona still there as a totemic figure and then when he retires it then you know that kind of spells an end of that era and that's just when Manchester United start getting good and that culminates in the treble in 1999 and so forth and and it makes it quite easy for you know for the press and, and us as fans to really understand it and in a way categorise it Whereby I think with sort of Pochettino, it's always uh, a lot harder and and more nuanced. You know, so whereby you know with Nicholson, he always had the advantage of being able to sort of make two different types of signings. So one of his you know most famous signings is you know Jimmy Greaves from AC Milan for ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine thousand pounds. So in other words, just literally a couple of pennies short of a million pounds. Sorry, a couple of pennies short of being a hundred thousand because no one wanted to be the first one hundred thousand pound football player. And at the same time, he was able to you know bring in from Ireland some you know for a you know, relatively small fee someone like Pat Jennings. You know, with Birkinshaw, he was able to make the sort of signature signings of you know uh, Ricky Villa and Osvaldo Ardiles which was something that you know was able to then kick on what was already a sort of promising nucleus if you look at Perryman if you look at Hoddle you know Hewton Garth Crooks Steve Archibald so on and so forth and you know if you look at Venables and Pleat in his when he first was at Spurs in the mid 80s you know they were able to you know sign Waddle Gascoigne from you know Newcastle. They were able to use Newcastle as effectively a farm outfit. You know, Venables was able to sign you know sort of Gary Lineker, <laughs> and so now for for po- Pochettino, it's <laughs> what's his signature kind of signings going to be, and and how how they're going to achieve it. No. In other words, who's who is his Van Dyke going to be? Who, which, to, you know, I I suppose. I can imagine a situation in which Tottenham let three or four players go and sign three or four players. 
will which could one of them will one of them be a big transfer will it be a 50 60 70 million pounds or is simply he going to sort of buck the trend and maybe buy you know three or four players at sort of 25 to 30 million pounds because really we know pretty much self-evidently that money talks in other words the teams that are most successful are the ones that spend the sort of most amount of money in the in terms of wages and that in generally turns to you know have an impact and a correlation between transfers so in other words you know there's plenty of you know center halves that you can sign for 20 million pounds who are going to be good and can develop but there's a whole massive difference of signing someone like van dyke at 75 million pounds because he's just plug in and play you just stick him in the center and everything good will come sort of from that virtually immediately and I think that's what will, I suppose, define his, you know, future legacy. In other words, the you know, Deli Ali signing, you know, had had some element of link to it. In other words, you you sign someone like Deli Ali, and then you hire someone like Maurizio Pochettino to coach him because Pochettino had shown that ability to develop those players and get the best out of them. And so I suppose to, to end this part of the podcast, I'm going to go back to our figurative character, Jeff. And and I think it's... and that for So basically, the, the entire of his childhood, his adolescence, his middle age, and now his old age, throughout that entire period, there's never been more than sort of Three or four years without Tottenham doing something. You know, you were being in a semi-final or in Europe or competing at the, the top of the league. And that virtually no other sort of teams can maintain that for, for such a, an extended period of time, for 70 years. And all of the changes that have happened in English football within that 70 years. So the abolition of the maximum wage, you know, players going across to Italy for you know, huge salaries, you know, the rise of English football as being sort of the dominant peer, you know, dominant league within Europe in the sort of seventies and eighties. You know, the decline of English football, you know, being banned from Europe, you know, the rise of the, the Premier League. And that through, you know, and then the rise of, you know, the the Champions League and the explosion of wealth in English football with television rights, with, you know, oligarchs and with, you know, sovereign wealth funds buying up and then sort of financially doping the league with globalisation, with the, you know, explosion of, you know, sort of foreign players coming over here with, you know, the changes in youth development and the football clubs going from relatively spartan small organizations to these kind of you know multinational you know, with hundreds of people in the workforce with you know stadiums that are just you know, hives of activity and that for Tottenham to have maintained themselves within that with all of these sort of with these handful of managers who are each and every single time that they get the job are fighting some of them you know, most brilliant managers, you know, who have, you know, just unbelievable players, unbelievable resources, you know, for, you know, Nicholson to go up against 
Busby, who had you know Bobby Charlton, who had George Best, and, you know to have you know the the Liverpool teams of the you know seventies and eighties, you know with Shankly, Paisley, you know, with you know, Kevin Keegan, with you know Kenny Dalglish, with all of that level of talent, you know with you know the sort of individual genius of Brian Clough, the you know the 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 class of ninety two the you know, Alex Ferguson's just desire to win. You know the the intelligence of you know Wenger. Uh, in other words, if you you know with with Everton, they've had you know these long periods where you know they're not particularly relevant. You know to Jeff. In other words, there's lots of years where they're, you know between sort of ninth and fifteenth. You know a few years in the late nine in the mid nineties, Everton were on the verge of being relegated. No, they've won the FA Cup in '95. They've got to a couple of semi-finals and they've got to a final. But more often than not, you know, if you look at their, you know, their Champions League, they qualified for it once, and they got knocked out by Villarreal. It's unfortunate Villarreal got to the semi-finals. You know, unexpectedly they were very they were underrated, but their Champions League experience really was in and out in two weeks. The the old easy jet joke. You know, they had a couple of cup runs in the UEFA Cup, but you know, they've never, you know, got through to the quarterfinals and they've never made that much of an impact. Now if you look at someone, let's say like West Ham, you know, they had a fantastic team in the sort of early two thousands that finished fifth, then you know, with uh, Joe Cole, Rio Ferdinand, Frank Lampard. But within sort of three or four years of that, they were relegated. <laughs> You know they had a great team in the eighties. Uh, finished second, but for that, you know, with sort of West Ham, that's what you really get. You get, you know, once or twice every ten years they get relegated. You get maybe one or two teams every sort of twenty five, thirty years that really can kick on you know, to greatness. Again, they have you know virtually no impact in Europe. And even with sort of you know Arsenal. Between so they won the title in forty eight and obviously from they were double in seventy one, but within that sort of twenty years plus time range, you know, for Jeff when he was let's say five or six, they won the FA Cup final, and the first cup in seventy. In that sort of twenty year period of time, you know, Arsenal, you know, weren't a everyday fa- you know factor in the league. You know, it was Everton. It was. Tottenham, it was Manchester United, you had a couple of great Burnley teams, you had a couple of great Ipswich teams. I mean, even, you know, with United, for all of their sort of monolithic success, between sort of Busby and Ferguson, you're looking at, well, Ron Atkinson wins a couple of cup finals in the 80s, 83 and 85. And they win the cup in seventy seven, get to a couple more finals in the seventies. But in that kind of sort of twenty plus year time frame, they weren't particularly relevant. They got relegated, and it was a huge sort of battle to get United even close to, to the point of competing with you know Liverpool and Everton for titles. And yet, throughout this whole sort of time frame. There's never been sort of two or three, four years where Spurs weren't doing something. And yet you look at it and each time they, they've had a great manager, that person has come up against really huge obstacles. 
You know, they don't have the money that some of the top level teams have. They don't have the supporter base that you know a lot of the the great English clubs have. In other words, yes, London is a huge international city, but it's also a huge international city with eight to ten big clubs, which virtually no other city really in, I suppose, Europe. And maybe you could say a couple, a similar sort of situation in Brazil, maybe with Sao Paulo and Rio. But even with that, there's still two or three clubs that really monopolise the public imagination. And a lot of those Rio and Sao Paulo so teams have fan bases that really spread across the entirety of Brazil, which Spurs don't really have. In other words, yes, they are one of the top six, seven clubs historically in English football. You know, we we've pretty much proven that self self evidently today with this podcast. I mean, even in the sort of nineties when Tottenham probably were at maybe their lowest ebb pretty much since maybe the 30s or the 40s <clears throat> when in that time period they finished you know third under you know Venables in 89-90 they win the FA Cup final in 91 against Brian Clough in 93 they play a second FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal at Wembley in 95 they get to the FA Cup semi-final against Everton in 99 another FA Cup semi-final against Newcastle in that time period they win the you know uh, Worthington Cup against Leicester at which point that was the only team you know other than United to win anything in the top level of English football and they beat them in a quarter final which stopped United from winning a well quadruple even although it was a you know United reserve team but that United reserve team was still pretty good and, you know in 2001 they have an FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal in 2002, 2003, they get through to the League Cup final against Blackburn and in the process beat Chelsea 5-1 in the semi-final. So in that period, I mean, this is why, you know, really when it comes down to it, I think there's two main sort of groups of people. There are the people that I think in some way, shape or form sort of admire Spurs because they're always there or thereabouts. They're always doing something interesting, you know, and playing football in, you know, an attractive manner. In other words, for Rowe, Nicholson, Birkinshaw, Poch, and to an extent Venables, Joel and Pleat, the only way they were able to, you know, there was always some element of, of sort of alchemy to it. <laughs> They're always trying in some way, shape or form to produce something that was, you know, entertaining and that would, you know, to maintain sort of Tottenham's, it's always very perilous in that regards. Perilous place as one of the sort of foremost teams in you know, British football, and it's specifically English football. In other words, United have you know, the huge space that is Old Trafford, which they've allowed to, which allowed them to develop the stadium. You know, they've had you know, a huge you know, fan base. You know, with Liverpool, you just had an sort of unbroken spell of success, both you know on the field and both to and culturally, really in terms of the Mersey B. And what both of those bits and pieces. So in other words, the success of Liverpool in the seventies and eighties, which was really when I suppose football on television became 
a sort of huge part of the game in terms of spreading the, the word. In other words, you know, you start getting people from London supporting Liverpool because if you didn't see that much football on television, the bits you did see were you know, Europe, you know, the finals, the semi-finals, and for basically the best part of you know, sort of twenty-five years, that usually meant Liverpool. And you know, with United, their success in the late sixties in terms of being the first English team to win the European Cup was, and a period when you know really you know television ownership after the World Cup started to, you know, rise. Whereby, let's say, Spurs won the European Cup in nineteen sixty two when they got to the semi finals, and you know they had this sort of. You know, they had a couple of goals disallowed against um, Benfica. The most obvious one that was that the guy scored the goal, smashed it in, and there was two Benfica players on the line, and the, the line gave him offside. Which, obviously, how could he have been offside if there was two Benfica players on the line? That was the time during the Euro- European Cup when you supplied the rest and line so Obviously, they were locals. But... But that's just a kind of a sliding doors moment for Tottenham. And there's always those sort of moments, you know, for you know, Rowe in 52, you had the, the pitch and the weather. Um, with Tottenham, you had the injuries to Dave Mackay, the two broken legs that, I suppose, in some ways curtailed his career or his effectiveness, I guess, during his sort of <clears throat> prime years. You had John White, the, the fantastic winger, who you know, went out golfing during a storm and basically sat under a tree to wait out the storm and was struck by lightning. You know, with sort of Birkinshaw and Pleat, you, you had these sort of, you know, there was a couple of times when Spurs were just on the verge <clears throat> and there'd always be something would happen. I mean, you know, really in sort of 85, 86, 87, Tottenham, you know, almost went for the quadruple, but just ran out of gas. And that maybe maybe had they focused on the league instead of the Cups, you would have then won a league, and that could have really changed, I suppose, the perception of Spurs to a way, much in the same way that with you know, sort of Pochettino. You know, you, and I'm going to sort of go into this in really the second half of this podcast in terms of you know, perception and in terms of the narrative that surrounds him, is that the two times that you know, this first great Pochettino side is that they came up against Leicester, who just went on this really unprecedented run and, you know, caught up not just the eyes of the nation, they caught the eyes of the world. And if you look at it, <clears throat> Leicester have gone one way since that league title and Spurs have gone another. And you, you then the next season, Spurs were probably a better outfit, more experienced and then they sort of ran into a Chelsea team under <coughs> and then they ran into an Antonio Conte Chelsea team which for eight games of the season was a mid table team and for ninety games was a you know all an all encompassing, well destroying machine. And you know, thirty wins out of thirty eight league games. Factor in that the first three or four league games were fairly ordinary and fairly poor. And then you sort of see things like, you know, with this season. You know, the If you'd said at the start, you know, let's say a week before the World Cup, that effectively uh, the 
World Cup third, fourth playoff would be an intraspurs training session, I think people would have laughed. Okay, maybe Belgium might do pretty well, but the idea that you know England would do well, that France would do well, and that somehow, sort of disproportionately, that would affect Tottenham, you know, would have been probably fairly unlikely. You know, Didier Deschamps, France team were inconsistent and in terms of performances hadn't been you know weren't were outsiders dark horses maybe there was expectations that you know Brazil were looking particularly strong that the Germans you know they were there or thereabouts but even the Spanish I think were probably rated a couple of notches higher and so really you've had this sort of season where you know and you've had the problems with the the ground, you've had all these other bits and pieces, and that, you know, effectively, you know, there was always likely that, you know, the Tottenham players were going to be, have injuries and form problems as a result of the World Cup, is that you were kind of left in a really impossible situation in that, you know, did, did he just simply, you know, give them all off, you know, sort of start them maybe three, four games into the season, at which point, <clears throat> and to still be, I suppose, meaningfully competing, and this is where I suppose the narrative argument will probably begin, but I think people keep on, I suppose, forgetting about just how much bigger, you know, in terms of wage bill, in terms of size, that, you know, Liverpool, the Manchester teams, Arsenal and Chelsea are in comparison I suppose in terms of the wage but in terms of really the the <coughs> the scope of the club I mean if you look at it I mean it's like the elephant in the room is that Everton have outspent Tottenham in the transfer market since Pochettino has arrived uh, they spent much more money and there's a far bigger gap between what Everton have spent and what they've recouped. I mean, with Pochettino, you're looking at maybe £25 million pounds, you know, he's spent <clears> that he hasn't recouped back. And that's over five years, so that really works out to about £5 million pounds a season. And then once you factor in that with the wage bill, that at the moment Tottenham's wage bill is six. But it is. There is a clear gap. I mean, it has, you know, that gap has declined slightly over the last couple of years as the money that they've given to um, Kane and the money that they've given to Ali starts to be you know, sort of filtered in and the money they've given to Son in contract extensions and so forth. But Everton are about a, m- a million and a half behind Spurs in terms of wage bill this season. In other words, Tottenham are a lot closer to the middle of the pack in terms of wage bill and in terms of expenditure in comparison with the big five. And yet over the sort of in the last four or five years, Tottenham have managed to outperform and to be consistently not just it's not that just they're finishing fourth, that they're finishing second, they're finishing third. You know. And so with each passing season they've improved in Europe to the point now where they're into the Champions League semi-finals, having knocked out Man City, who the mo at that time were going for the quadruple, who you know last season got a hundred points, who this season you know have you know are neck and neck in this race with <clears throat> Liverpool, just putting up just absolutely 
you know, phenomenal numbers in terms of wins. They're winning sort of 19 out of 20. And yet what I think fascinates me is the concept of the sort of prevailing uh, Pochettino narrative that you know, he has to win a trophy and that really the semi-final losses and the couple of times they had you know, fallen short in the league you know, is somehow a a moral failure. You know, so losing against Man United in the Cup semi-final, losing against Chelsea in the Cup semi-final, both of those games were fairly sort of tight. In other words, you know, against Man United, Tottenham went one nil up and they had a couple of chances to you know, two nil and I think had they got that second goal, I, there's, I think there's a decent chance Tottenham would have gone through. But as long as it stayed, you know, one nil, there was always the chance that you know that the if Man United equalised, that then you know, and semi-finals can be very, in my personal experience, I often find semi-finals are all about sort of momentum. In other words, you know. Really, outside of the sort of Watford semi-final, often one team gets that momentum, and it's like a sort of boulder going down, you know, a hill. It's it just keeps on building momentum. So, in other words, you you let's say you're one nil, you score in the first few minutes of a semi-final, and you're one nil up for most of the half, and just before half time, you know, you give away a cheap equaliser. Now, in most games, that you still then got half time to you know, argue it out, make some subs, do whatever changes you need to make, and that the second half starts completely fresh. But with semi-finals, I think the emotion of it, generally one team will just run with it and will pick up that momentum, and it can be very difficult to stop it. It needs something, you know, like a, a moment of genius to stem that tide. You know, Delafeo showed that in that final by that chip, which then just you know gave Watford effectively 10 minutes to go at Wolves. I mean, at that point, Wolves, up until about two seconds before Delafoe chipped that ball, had done everything right. You know, they had got the goal, they got a second goal, they were holding the ball, they had the subs, they knew they could bring players on to you know, see out the game. Second, that one bit of... It wasn't, it wasn't as if you could say it was terrible defending, it was just a moment of genius... And then suddenly Watford have nothing to lose and Wolves had everything to lose. You know, gives away a penalty. And then you, know, you could only really see Watford winning from that point onwards. And, you know, and people sort of seem to forget just how much more money United to spend. I don't, I'm not saying that they had spent it well. And even, you know, that team finished second. You know, it was a Jose team. Although as much as... You know, we'd say Jose is a diminished person. His capacity within that team at that moment was that, that he knew how to ground out a win. It didn't necessarily play the most brilliant football doing so, but knew how to do. And the, the, this team that he played was just experienced enough that they rode their luck at 1-0, got an equaliser, and then you know were able to hold Tottenham off and then nicked one. And that's, you know, that's 2-1. I think the... The Chelsea semi-final was just a fantastic bit of management from Antonio Conte. I mean, at that point, it was a really delicately poised semi-final. In other words, Tottenham were you know, in a really good streaking run of form. And there was a potentiality that 
Tottenham were, had sort of caught up with Chelsea, and that if Chelsea lost that semi final to Tottenham, that that could then affect their league form, and that you know at this stage it was just close enough to the end of the season that the momentum could then you know derail Chelsea, and it could just you know Tottenham could win the league and then possibly even a double. Now that was assuming that you know that your it was a fear not the most probable fear in the world but it was enough of a fear that Conte would have to then respect that and so really what he did was a form of gamble in other words he didn't play uh, Matic and he didn't play no no sorry I got it wrong didn't play Hazard and he didn't play Costa kept them on the bench so in other words and every Tottenham fan that went into that stadium that went oh wow he's devaluing the cup and it was really just a way of covering for himself so in other words if Tottenham let's say played up to their thing and Chelsea had a bit of an off day and let's say Tottenham won 4-0 you'd be able to say well wasn't our strongest team we can now focus on the league and then really brush it under the carpet Whereby, if let's say, as, as what happened, Chelsea played up that day, Tottenham played okay, made a couple of mistakes, and that it led to the situation where it was 2 all. Tottenham had played the better football, but Chelsea had got the goals, and really there was 20 25 minutes left, and then Conte could then use his you know, wild card. He could then bring on Costa, he could then bring on Eden Hazard, and then the momentum changed, you know. Scored a worldie, and another worldie, it was 4-2. Tottenham were never coming back from that in the month of Sundays. And so at that point, you know, basically he'd <clears throat> managed to rest a couple of players. He'd managed to, you know, beat Spurs. And at that point, the league, you know, I mean, Tottenham kept going. But, you know, Chelsea always had the whip hand in that regards. So it, this is where the difficulty comes. In both of those games, and even to an extent the semi-final this year against Chelsea in the uh, League Cup, Tottenham haven't finished the job off. Now, the Chelsea semi-final, as far as I'm concerned, you get to a penalty shootout, anything could happen. It's, you know, I don't think Tottenham have lacked moral fibre with penalty shootouts. They've won a couple. It went either way. And Chelsea won, and I felt deservedly, I felt they were the better team over two legs, but it was tight enough that one goal either way you know, would have changed it. And there's always going to be an element with the lack of squad depth that we have in comparison with someone like Chelsea, who you know, not only have a fairly strong squad in terms of youth players, in terms of experienced players, they also have you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 players on loan. To me, I don't see winning the League Cup if we'd, let's say, beat Chelsea in penalties and gone play Man City in the final. It would have been great to beat Man City and it would have been fantastic and we you know, would have had a cup. But I don't know whether beating Man City in a one-off game or beating Chelsea or United... In those games, you just have one or two moments. One goal goes in, you know, let's say you hit the post. and If it hits the post and goes in, you're 2-0 up. Different story. You hit the post and you, you know, 
anything can happen from that point onwards. So, I think it is, there is some point to it that in those sort of games under Pochettino, they've fallen a bit short each time. But I would say that those, it's a too small a sample size and those games were too tight and the context of it to make a, a sort of definitive judgment. I would say if you that take over the the sort of last three, four pots years. So if we take the first year where, you know, that wasn't his squad, he deciding who he was gonna keep, who he was gonna get rid of, you know where they got to a League Cup final against Chelsea, who won double, lost two nil, and that team. If you look at the the starting lineup, wasn't the strongest Tottenham team. A lot of those players aren't now playing for Spurs anymore. Is that it's not as if Pochettino hasn't cared about the cup competitions. You know, it, virtually every single year he's been out there, <clears throat> we've either got to a final or a semi final. But it's not his be all and end all, and I think. That makes sense because in semi-finals, you know, as we said, anything can happen. You are absolutely at the mercy of random moments. One goal goes in, changes everything, that kind of situation. So I think if you look at the long term, if you look at the first year that Tottenham were in the Champions League under Pochettino, uh, they were in a bit of a bad run of form at the time and... You know, they had a couple of moments against Monaco at Wembley, and then, you know, I think Son was through on goal and it was a draw. If he buries that, anyway, they lost, and they had a couple of scrappy games and got knocked out of the group stage. It was a fairly strong group. I mean, Monaco got to the semi finals and beat Man City on the way. Leverkusen were a fairly decent outfit. And even CSK, Moscow, you know, in other words, there was just literally. You know, one or two goals in it. In other words, Tottenham got, I think, seven points out of the group stage. Eight would have taken them through to the next round. But they had made mistakes. And if you look at the second half of the season where things clicked and they played a better brand of football and then went on, you know, to, you know, finish in the top three. Did really well. And so you're then looking at the next year in the Champions League. You know, it was a tough draw with you know Real Madrid, with Borussia Dortmund, and they topped that group. You know, they got results at the Bernabeu, which they were lucky not to win that game. And they got a result in Dortmund at the Westfalen Stadium and beat both of those teams at home. You know, even even the Limassol, the Cypriot team they played, have had some shocks to get for them to get to the group stages you know, <clears throat> shows you that they have a depth of quality. And then in the round of 16, they were playing Juventus. Now, those two legs, I think, are fascinating to sort of look into in a bit more depth. In other words, you can beat Real Madrid in a group stage game. Eventually, you know, Real Madrid end up winning the tournament. But really, for them, it was... Whenever you're Real Madrid, it doesn't really matter whether you finish first or second... You know, whoever you're going to play, it, you're going to have an element of advantage just purely from being Real Madrid. So the Juventus game, I don't think I've ever come across a two-legged game that was so crystallised in the sense that 
Tottenham had you know, so over, over the three hours, I would say that Tottenham had twenty bad minutes, and in those twenty bad minutes, they conceded four goals. So in other words, if you were to you know jumble it up, if you were to instead of treating it as in you know home leg and away leg, ninety minutes, ninety minutes, if you were to basically analyze it in you know terms of who did better in other words if you were using it like a i suppose a boxing metaphor so in other words if you'd say let's do it on points you'd have to say that let's say for rounds two four and seven juventus nearly knocked spurs out <laughs> however the remainder of the fight tottenham were dominant you know, scored three goals, played better football, you know, silenced the Juventus stadium. And Juventus weren't used to being outplayed, especially when they'd gone 2-0 up so early and that Tottenham got the goals back. Probably on the balance of play, I'd say in the boxing, if it was you know, scored in a boxing sort of style, I think Spurs would have narrowly gone through. And I think Juventus would have had, you know, arguments to say that although they weren't dominant for the whole fight, they were so good in those three rounds and nearly, you know, knocked Spurs down a couple of times, nearly got the knockout punch that you could argue that maybe, you know, you could call it a draw or even a narrow Juventus victory. But I think over the two legs, Spurs have been better. But the difference being is is that in football, you can't be that bad for that period of time so in other words you can't if you're that bad in 20 minutes that you know that they conceded four goals you don't really deserve to go through and it was that kind of naivety in the first sort of 15 20 minutes at Juventus where you know it was the atmosphere was quite you know it was white hot Juventus have a lot more top level experience in terms of winning every single week you know it's that kind of principle in other words in the second leg at Wembley Tottenham went a goal in front and were winning in the tie with sort of, sort of 20, 25, about 25 minutes left. And really all Spurs needed was that one last goal to finish the job off, right? And they didn't get it. And although Juventus had been you know, up you know, on the cosh, they just knew that if they could get an equaliser and a away goal... They, they didn't have to be good for the 90 minutes. They just had to make those two chances and have the confidence to bury both of them. And they did. They scored the equaliser, scored another goal about two, three minutes later, and then just held out. You know, I mean, Tottenham had about two or three chances. And had it had they equalised, and then, it, you know, so four or all in aggregate, and it gone to extra time, I think Tottenham would have finished the job off. But still, there were some elements of naivety, but in the wider scheme of things, to have got two wins from going to the sorry, win at the Westfalen Stadion, a draw at the Bernabeu, and having been 2-0 down after you know, 10-15 minutes in Juventus Stadium and to got a draw, that's, that's progress from where they were against Monaco, Leverkusen, and now obviously this year... If you look at the sort of group stages and the situation they were in, you know, 
Tottenham hadn't made any signings. A lot of the players were tired from Europe, injuries. You know, it was, you know, and not the ideal start to the season. You had all the issues with the um, stadium and not signing anyone. There's, there's an element of negativity that was floating around the club. And really, his only, I suppose, dissipated once Spurs had moved into the new stadium and really culminated in this you know, fantastic victory against Man City. And so they were 1-0 you know, up in the first game against Inter. They conceded an equaliser and then conceded a last-minute you know, winner. You know, again, it's one of those classic ones they should have... I suppose you know, Acardi's equaliser was a particularly good goal. The second one was a bit sloppy. There was an element, they just looked shocked. You know, they, hadn't, they hadn't seen out the game and at least got a draw. And or and from the sort of attacking perspective, they hadn't got the second goal they needed, which would have put the game to, to bed. And obviously then you play Barcelona. It's an interesting game. I mean, on paper, it says Barcelona won 4-2. <clears throat> you know, Messi had a couple more chances you know, to score more. But at the same time, and again, this was a sort of another slightly injury ravaged Tottenham, not in the best of form, and yet they kept coming back. So yeah, they conceded a disastrous goal. Hugo made a mistake, and they at times looked. And you know, the pitch was poor quality because of the boxing and the NFL, and and yet with two three minutes to go. Tottenham were chasing an equaliser. The fourth was really a breakaway goal from Messi. And yet to have then obviously got late wins against PSV and late win against Juventus. Sorry. Late win against Inter. And to have gone to the new camp you know, where literally, you know, prior to that game, they'd, I think they lost 27 games before Spurs played, they'd gone 25 and 2 so 25 wins two draws no defeats and to have then nicked a point from your new camp you know with an equaliser with you know five six minutes to go to have then qualified out of that from having you know you know made one point from three games you know having you know, they should have won in Eindhoven against PSV and this is a PSV that have you know neck and neck with Ajax at the top of the Dutch league you know and look how impressive Ajax have been in there in their run to the Champions League semi-finals where they're going to play Spurs you know at each stage with each season Tottenham have done something new and have got better in a, in a different way so that they've now each year they've progressed in Europe a bit further and shown more nous in terms of, you know, they didn't collapse at Man City in the way that they, you know, sort of did against Juventus in that, you know, first sort of 10, 15 minutes. You know, they conceded the early goal to, to Sterling, but went straight up the other end and got two goals. Even though, yeah, and so, I mean, I know people will say, OK, well, Spurs conceded three goals in the first half and some defending wasn't great, but this was a Man City team with absolutely had to score multiple goals. They were going to throw everything at it. I mean, I think even if you just lined them up nine at the back and then Lucas Moore on the halfway line for the, you know, breakaway, Man City still would have, you know, you've got a De Bruyne in form, a Sterling playing, you know, pretty much, you know, top level, you know, player of the year football. And so this is where I think, 
in some ways the the narrative fails is that it's a very traditionalist viewpoint the idea is is that you know you you need to win a carling cup or you need to win the FA cup and that'll then lead to the winning mentality that you will then need to step up to the winning in Europe and winning and competing and winning the league and that validates the cup competitions and how important they are in English football and yet none of that narrative goes yes but look how much financially you know the top 5 are in front of Tottenham no, specifically Man City to an extent you know Liverpool and you know Manchester United I mean Arsenal are on a similar financial you know platform but you know they still you know their wage bill is 50 60 70 million pounds more you know they're able to spend 50 million pounds on two strikers in a way that you know Tottenham can't in other words you you know I mean you spend 50 million on one striker to then in the next window spend another 50 million on the striker Spurs' business model wouldn't really allow for that kind of sort of financial largesse and to then have a you know, spend all that money on Ozu in terms of his wages. I mean, I think in the future there's a potentiality that Spurs may you know, match Arsenal's sort of financial pound for pound, but obviously Arsenal are in a position where they sort of effectively paid off their stadium and we have that to look forward to, especially in a sort of Brexit economy that's going to be difficult the best of times. And it then goes to a sort of nature of really, uh, I suppose the key question is that are trophies an effective way of validating you know, football talent? And I know you're probably shouting at the, the, the screen uh, or the speakers, why would I say that? I think, look at it this way. So basically, trophies are awarded at the end of the season arbitrarily. So in other words, whoever has the most points at the end of the season, you win the the title here champions and it's just done over an end of season so each season is a standalone in other words you start the season at zero points whoever gets the most at the end and that makes sense that's why virtually every other league and virtually most major leagues in the world work on that basis cup competitions luck of the draw but on some levels it then produces a narrative that always has to then back that up and that's where the traditional narrative comes in that I've been talking about. Yeah, you sort of sit there and go, well, okay. Yep, Leicester outperformed Tottenham in that one season where Leicester won the league. And they finished, was it, five, six, seven, maybe ten points in front. We lost our last two games after we sort of fell apart, really. And they won the league. Yet, if you then take the next season, is that, so over 76 games, Tottenham had won the most points out of anyone who played in the Premier League in that two-year period. So in other words, whereby Leicester's form was really one season, the next season they finished bang mid-table, had a little bit of a European run, but that was it. So surely you'd argue that the 76 games that Tottenham had played in the league in that period of time, and they were better than, you know, Chelsea both, you know, both years, you know, cumulatively better than Arsenal, better than Man United, better than Man City, and in comparison with the amount of money spent, the point is, is just because no trophy was given, that doesn't negate the fact that Tottenham were the best team over a two-year period. And what that traditional narrative, what the arbitrary giving out of trophies does, is that 
it complete it gives a a sense of fairness to what is an inherently unfair proposition in other words it gives almost like the fig leaf that somehow let's say spurs and man city are working off the same plane in other words on august the 12th man city have no points tottenham have no points but that doesn't really i suppose explain the golf in the finances and the youth development all the other bits and pieces that really mean that there is you know two separate leagues you've got the top six and virtually everybody else and so it then also changes the narrative in the way how how different managers are viewed in other words Pochettino and Guardiola are both viewed as geniuses. I mean, that's I think I feel that would be a consensus <coughs> consensus view. And so, when they played each other in the Champions League this year in the quarterfinals, now Pep Guardiola's had virtually an unlimited budget. Uh, hasn't had the same level of injuries that Tottenham have had. Um, yeah, players weren't as quite as involved in the World Cup to the extent um, he has a probably a better quality of youth player at his disposal. He has a deeper squad. Probably, I'd say, even a slightly younger squad in many ways. I mean, in terms of Sterling, Sane, Gabriel Jesus. I mean, there's a couple of older players on there in terms of, you know, sort of Fernandinho. But, and in terms of the... In terms of the sort of ceilings that some of those players have, so... You know, Sane could be a future Ballon d'Or winner, so you could say the same about you know, Sterling, you know, De Bruyne, I mean even to an extent, you know, sort of Imeric Laporte, even sort of John Stones. There is just a huge amount of <clears throat> promise. You know, you've got Phil Foden, you've got any number of you know players, even you know, you could say Mendy, even you know, Aderson has the ability to be one of the best goalkeepers in the world. There is you know, just a frighteningly large amount of you know talent available to you know Pep Guardiola on any given day, and in you know in terms of experience, in terms of internationals, in terms of just you know, virtually any metric that you want to give. They last season they won the the league with a hundred points, first time that's been done in the Premier League. I mean, this year they you know they were going for the quadruple. They won the Carling Cup. They're in the sorry, Capital One Cup. League Cup, and they're in the FA Cup final. Now, with each sort of transfer window, Pep Guardiola has a much larger budget. Was able to make you know whichever signings that you know he wanted, and you know the pulling power that Man City have. You know, there's very few players that they wouldn't be able to buy if they decided they wanted them. And yet, it's pretty clear that Pochettino outcoached. Guardiola in the both legs. So throughout the three hours that they played football, Man City at no point had control really at any given time. So in other words, as long as the first leg out at New White Hart Lane stayed as it was, no way goal, that gave Spurs a form of advantage. In the second legs played at you know, City of Manchester, the IT had any away goal, that means Man City would have to get two goals. 
So then you've got the late Son goal, you had the injury to Harry Kane. You know, a lot of the advantages, you know, the advantages, you know, in terms of you know, players available, in terms of the quality of those players, was massively in Man City's favour. That's why they're basically 20 points better off than Spurs are in the league. If you want an example, just compare the bench on Wednesday night between Spurs and Man City. Whose bench would you rather have? Whose bench was deeper? Whose bench had a more varied set of talented players? And yet, even after you know Man City took a quick lead through Raheem Sterling, all that allowed was that the tie was level. In other words, Man City had scored one at home, Spurs had scored one at home. Yet, the advantage was still basically... If Spurs scored, Man City had to get two more, and immediately Spurs go up the other end and get that goal. And so, really, from the rest of that game, you know, even when Man City were going through, you know, there was always a sense that all Spurs ever had to do at any given moment in that game was to score one more goal. I mean, in terms of the tactics in the first leg, Man City's tactics were just strange. You know, they sort of sat off us, they were relatively defensive in terms of, you know, picking, you know, um, Delph at fullback, you know, they kept, you know, De Bruyne on the bench, they kept Sane on the bench, they kept them on even after Spurs had scored, you know, a goal from Son, bit of an error from Ederson, after 81-82 minutes, and you're thinking, well, why don't you just immediately stick on De Bruyne and Sane, really go get the equaliser, put Spurs under a huge amount of pressure, and yet, Guardiola didn't, you know, only brought them on until the 89th, 90th minute, at which point there's only really two minutes left, and neither of them were able to make much of an impact. And yet in the sort of second leg, you know, he keeps Fernandinho on the bench and puts, you know, Gundogan in there because he feels that, you know, Gundogan's passing and they'll allow them sort of more, I suppose, offensive fluidity in terms of attacking Spurs. But then he's all almost sort of very worried that, you know, they might need some leadership on, on the night, so he puts, you know, company in the middle of defence. But you know that because of Kane's injury, because of Fernando Llorente's age, they're more than likely going to start with, you know, Lucas Moura and Son up front and try and hit, you know, City on the counter-attack at pace. And you think, well, why don't you put Stones in the middle of defence or even Otamendi, who are better in terms of dealing with that kind of threat? You know, him, you know, Laporte and Stones, because they're good on the ball, they've got the pace to sort of match them step for step. And he didn't. So in the end, defensively in midfield, Man City were quite poor. They didn't have the sort of control that Fernandinho gives them. And they didn't have the sort of skills at the back to really neutralise you know, the Spurs counter-attack. And yet, there were still people on in the media sort of saying that, well, because Guardiola for now for eight years hasn't got through to a Champions League semi-final, that in some ways that's been unlucky, despite being, at, you know, in those eight years being at Barcelona, Bayern Munich and Man City, who all of those clubs have just tremendous assets in terms of money, in terms of history, in terms of youth development. And yet, because he'd won those those trophies, you know, at, you know, obviously Barca, Bayern, and Man City. That now, in some ways, in terms of the narrative, and I'll probably go into this deeper in a different podcast, but in some ways, that afforded him the benefit of the doubt through these sort of poor tactics. In other words, they got absolutely battered last season in the Champions League by Liverpool, conceding five goals. They conceded six goals to Monaco. 
in the you know first European campaign, and now they've conceded four to Spurs. And yet, Pochettino, for the tactics and all the injuries and all the problems that Spurs have had this season, and you know the lack of spending, which obviously has hurt, and yet he still hasn't been given the narrative sense, you know, benefit of the doubt due to this sort of prevailing narrative. And yet, whose genius was better? You know, in terms of using, you know, getting the best out of Moussa Sissoko, in terms of, you know, developing players, you know, like Trippier, in comparison with, you know, Man City, where, you know, instead of, you know, when they had a problem with fullbacks, they spent 50 million plus on Carl Walker, they then spent 50 million plus on Mendy, they then spent, you know, 20, 30 million pounds on Danilo to back both of those players up. You know, if you look at the sort of talent that Man City have in their youth academy, you know, instead of using Jaden Sancho, he eventually goes to, you know, Borussia Dortmund and has done fantastically well there. And, you know, Phil Foden, who's played bits and pieces, he's obviously got huge talent, but isn't really making much headway. And I can't imagine that his development is going as rapidly well as someone like Harry Winks, who's been given, you know, massive amounts of starting opportunities in both the league, the Champions League. You know, I... I'm not suggesting for a minute that you know we change the way how trophies are awarded. I mean, that would be you know sort of ridiculous, and there wouldn't be any consensus for it. But the idea that somehow that trophies should be considered a sort of neutral way of and completely fair way of assigning you know competence and victory and who's the best football team it is really. In my personal opinion, I think it's a complete myth. I mean, the gap between the haves and the have-nots, even within the construct of the top six, so the difference between really, you know, Man City and Man United, and then really you've got sort of Liverpool and Arsenal on the next level, and then Spurs really another probably couple of notches below that, means that means that. I suppose for the first time probably in my lifetime and probably even in maybe English football history you, you've had a team legitimately going for four, five trophies if you're counting I suppose the charity shield that has ended up falling short but not through the reasons every other attempt has done in the past which is you know like Leeds in the 70s and Spurs in the 80s and you know Liverpool a couple of times in the seventies and the eighties, in that it wasn't a defeat due to, you know, exhaustion due to fixture pile up. It was really bad choices from the manager, who has been universally praised as being some kind of sort of, you know, savant genius. I mean, I agree the football that he plays is fantastic. I agree that wherever he has gone, he has brought some success, but. He, by denigrating Pochettino and Spurs for not winning trophies and yet giving the benefit of the doubt to Guardiola, who has won trophies, you're ignoring you know, the money and the, the gap between the two in terms of resources. Now, I personally think that really this Champions League quarterfinal is a, the equivalency of a middleweight knocking out a heavyweight. And yet... And it begets a real question, which is what how we're going to end this podcast. That to you, the viewer, and to you, the football fan, you know, as a sort of body politic, is that 
if Tottenham, by not spending any money in the last two transfer windows, in terms of the player, the majority of those players staying, despite not getting as much money in wages, and in terms of you know opportunities where they could you know further their careers, you know like Real Madrid for example, or PSG, or one of the bigger teams in in Britain, is why so many fans have been critical of Spurs for not spending money, when considering that that one of the sort of most common criticisms of you know football now is the amount of money that's you know going into the game and this sort of resulting impact in terms of you know lack of loyalty and player movement is that so really I'll, I'll sort of finish with a final question is that you know, whose genius is better you know Pochettino's or you know Pep Guardiola's who do you think this year has done a better job in comparison with the resources available to them? Thank you for listening.